Father, give us insight into who we are as human beings and as sinners. And also, Lord, encourage us by what you have done for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, coming, Graham. This is a sermon about a certain wretchedness in human life. We're in that Romans passage from the epistle and Paul cries out at the end of that, what a wretched man I am. And he's not wretched because he's kind of hungry and destitute. He's not wretched because he's bereaved and has been left alone. He's not wretched because he's despised and rejected by his fellow men. Rather, he is wretched because he is a sort of prisoner. Uh, He says in verse 22, Therefore, in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So Paul speaks here as someone who's kind of been invaded, he feels, occupied by the power of sin, so that his inner being is divided from his outward acts. He says, therefore, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not, for I do, not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. In this passage, Paul sketches a, an understanding of the human moral experience. It's an account that serves, firstly, to illuminate our situation to ourselves. Secondly, it's an account that serves to kindle in us gratitude for Jesus Christ and for what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And thirdly, I suggest, it's an account that can evoke our compassion and understanding for one another. And so that's what I want to look at, those three points, as we go through. Firstly, let's look at this account which illuminates our situation to ourselves. So firstly, let's, uh, let's notice that Paul seeks to describe the human moral situation in two ways. <clears throat> firstly, he says we're put to death by sin through God's law. We're put to death. Now, we're not literally put to death because here we are kind of breathing, but we are put to death in a certain sense. That is, we become aware that death has its grip on us because sin has done its work in us. Death is God's condemnation of sin and that condemnation has come upon us. We become aware. Paul describes the human moral situation firstly in a way that defends God's law. Because, you know, if we were here last week in chapter 7 verse 5, he has just said, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. And this may sound like Paul is saying that God's law is the problem. You know, sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us. Paul clarifies in chapter 7, verse 7, the beginning of our passage, uh, this is not what he means. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Is this the problem, that God's law is somehow the agent, the creator of sin? Certainly not. God's law 
identifies and gives us a knowledge of what sin is, says Paul. He says, nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul here quotes the Tenth Commandment of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male or female servant, his ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. And this commandment contains and conveys the knowledge that coveting, that even our desire, even what goes on in our heart, is part of what sin is. It's not merely outward acts, it's also inward dispositions and, and wants. Desire for what is not yours to have or to take is part of what sin is. Now, Paul has already said that he believes that the requirements of the law are written on the hearts, even of those who who did not ever receive the Ten Commandments. That whoever we are, Jew or Gentile, the requirements of the law are written on our hearts. So that the knowledge of the requirements of God's law is part of the human moral situation generally. We know what sin is. We know what sin is through God's law. So God's law is not the problem. There is, there is a, another source of the problem. Sin is the problem. Paul personifies sin. He says it's like this power, this, this enemy, this agency that's at work. Verse 8, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. It's not God's law that produces our disobedience. There's this other influence, a hostile actor, sin. And the coming of God's commandment is the coming of moral understanding. But in our human experience, at the very same time as we come to moral understanding, we often come to the understanding that we are not moral. We are not who we should be. We are in fact, lawbreakers, we are wrongdoers, we are guilty. Maybe as a kid, you learn what stealing is because you get busted for taking something. And so at the very same time as the commandment is impressed upon you, you shall not steal, the occasion of that is that you are a thief. So understanding the law and knowing yourself to be condemned by it come together. Maybe when you're older, you know... Well, you learn what pride really is, for instance, when you take a humiliating fall because of your own unseen pride. This is the story of you know, Pride and Prejudice or something like this, that there's ways that we understand what sin is, a particular thing like pride or prejudice, in the very moment of coming to understand that that sin is our sin. It's in us. It's our problem. And so moral insight and moral guilt arise together in our moral experience very often. And so moral awakening for the human being is often painful. It's mortifying because it's often us awakening to our faults. Paul expresses this in verse 9. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Maybe you learn really what anger is and why it is sin because you see the damage done by your anger. And you die 
You experience guilt and shame and despair and foreboding. You understand that there is something ruined in you and about you. You realise you have been deceived about yourself and you've been overcome as if by an enemy who has plotted your downfall. Verse 11, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. There is Paul's first sketch of human wretchedness. We are put to death, to shame and to ruin, by sin, through God's law. Paul's second sketch is this, that we are captive to sin despite God's law. And so, verse 14, he says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I, he says, am unspiritual. I am fleshly, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. What I I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Paul speaks here of... Well, as a a human being who shares with all of us this divided, frustrated condition. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. There is a dimension to us that recognises the goodness of God's law, that wants to follow it. You know, that wants to honour parents, that wants to, well, not to murder, in fact, not even to act in malice or anger, nor to seek to destroy in any way. We want that of ourselves. We don't want to commit adultery. We want to be faithful and loving and build a, a trusted intimacy. We don't want to steal. In fact, we want to be as honest as the day is long, to give rather than to take. We want to, not to give false testimony, but to speak the truth from a pure heart and to be respected for it. And so Paul affirms all these things about us. The law is spiritual. The law is good. I have the desire to do what is good. I want to do good. I delight in God's law, he says. But this desire is not so easily carried through. I do not understand what I do, he says. What I hate, I do. The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Paul feels like he's been infiltrated, he's been made a puppet. It's no longer I who do this, but it is sin living in me that does it. Now perhaps you relate to this. You know, some gentle, patient person, and you think, I'll be like them. I'll be the gentle, patient person. And you want it, but you can't make it happen. When your patience is tested, you crumble again into that ugly harshness that you hate. You know some strong, open, honest person who, you know, they won't let issues fester or people pretend and live in some false peace that underneath is full of resentments. They pull these things into the open and deal with them and you think, I'll be like them. You know, I'll have these honest but difficult conversations and resolve problems between me and others and make a real peace, not a fake one. But, you know... You can't make it happen. Raising the issue, when it comes to it, is, it's just too confronting. It's just too hard. And you, again, stay quiet. Go on smiling and pretending. The good I want to do, I do not do. What I hate, I do. 
We'd like to be sober, and yet we're drunk again. We know we should stop with the porn, but it's not that easy. We know gossip and bad-mouthing people is, is not right. We shouldn't do it, but it just comes out of our mouths before we know it. That's the wretchedness of being in the flesh, a slave to sin, a prisoner of the law of sin. That's part of human moral experience. And that's the burden of the passage, but let's not stop there. For there is help for the wretched. What a wretched man I am, says Paul in verse 24. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And he knows who will rescue him. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so let's secondly see in this passage that it can kindle for us an appreciation of our wretchedness and also an appreciation of Jesus' deliverance. And we need to just have a little preview of next week's passage in order to appreciate this. Verse 1 of chapter 8, the next verse of, our, of the book of Romans says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Here is the deliverance in Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, God has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, if you think you can deal with the law of sin and death yourself, then who needs Jesus? It's nice of him to show up, perhaps, but we'd be fine without him, wouldn't we? If the law of sin and death can be escaped with a good education, good upbringing, you know, teach the child the right way to walk, as long as you make some common sense choices and exercise a bit of self-control, you'll be fine. There'll be no moral problem for you. Well, if that's really the case, then who needs Jesus? Nice of him to show up, but what's he really got to offer us that we can't already have for ourselves? Because if we are basically good-hearted people, just with a few foibles that anyone could forgive, then again, who needs Jesus? This is perhaps what many people actually feel. I'm not so bad. I've got a few rough edges and sharp corners, but I've got a job, don't I? You know, I've got a wife or a husband. I've got friends. I can't be, I can't be so bad. What do I need this Jesus for? Well, Romans 7 challenges us to see ourselves differently, to reflect on our moral experiences as being mortifying, showing us our failure, our fault, our weakness, pointing our wayward desire, all that we wish for that we should not wish for. This chapter, Romans 7, challenges us to see ourselves as wretched and therefore to experience profound relief, profound gratitude, profound joy and hope when we discover God's deliverance in Jesus Christ, that he sets us free from the law of sin and death. Through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That we are not basically good-hearted people who just need to be taught what is good. We are enslaved by sin and God and he alone can and has set us free 
through Jesus, his son. And there will be more on that next week. So it's all connected. You've got to keep coming to put it all together. I encourage you to be here next week. But let's, uh, let's end with the third thing I think this passage can give us an appreciation for, and that is an appreciation of our wretchedness evokes our compassion for one another. Because if you think that human beings can master themselves, morally speaking, then it's the case that if people don't master themselves or won't master themselves morally, they must be lazy or perverse. They are doubly wrong, wrong for doing wrong, but also wrong for not taking themselves in hand and doing better. Now, it is wrong to do wrong, and we should take ourselves in hand, but once we know our wretchedness, once we understand the teaching that Paul gives about what it is to be human, once we know that our wretchedness in the hands of sin, we also know that we We cannot master ourselves. I can't master myself, and I shouldn't expect you to master yourself. We and those around us cannot take ourselves in hand and simply do right. There's a saying, never name the well from which you will not drink. Never name the well from which you will not drink. Now, that means never say, I would never steal. I would never seek a solution to my problems in stealing. I would not go to that well under any circumstances and seek to drink from it. I would never lie. I would never seek a solution to my problems by going to that well and drinking of the well of lying. I would never never drink of the well of adultery or vengeance. He said, the saying is, don't do that. Because if you think that you're immune, that you would never go to that well, under any circumstances, you don't know yourself. Because as Paul says, he says to himself, I do not understand what I do. Which means, I take it, you also don't understand what you do. I do not, I, I do what I do not want to do, which I take it also means that you do what you do not want to do. And if we can all live with each other, mindful of this, then I think this invokes compassion. Since this is what we are as sinners in ourselves, we should take pity on one another. Let's not be merciless, condemning, judging. But as much as we're able, let's mix in with our expectation of others, compassion, patience, an acknowledgement of our wretchedness, which means that each of us is less than each of us would wish to be. If we can understand ourselves in that way, I think we will treat each other more kindly. So there are three things I think we can get from this passage today. Firstly, an understanding of what it means to be wretched in sin, to know that that's our situation. Gratitude, therefore, for God's deliverance in Christ from that law of sin and death. And lastly, compassion for our fellow sinners, for we're all in this boat together until God makes all things perfect.
Let's pray. Father, don't uh, let us be blind to the consequences of sin in our lives, but to know our wretchedness, difficult as that might be to face, and our need of your deliverance. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have come to us in mercy and compassion in the person of your Son, and Jesus has died for us and poured out his Spirit on us that we might be set free from this wretchedness, the law of sin and death at work in our lives. And Lord, as we anticipate uh, next week, coming to hear more of what that means, in the meantime, Lord, help us to see one another as uh, fellow sinners and therefore the objects of understanding and patience and compassion and not merely to condemn one another. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.